0: Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I want to thank everyone for all the great support that I have been receiving uh, lately. Um, The guests that I've been having have been people that a lot of you haven't heard of. I've been finding some interesting people like Nathan Smith and last week's Rebecca Biblioteca, who I just, I think people really have enjoyed her and her story. And uh, this is a gentleman, his name is Josh Gailey. And he is with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. He holds the office of evangelist. And uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, to all you out there, and I go to my, I go to my friends out in Utah, and I said, the very first church in the restoration I ever attended was the Church of Jesus Christ. I said, you're Pentecostal cousins, and they look at me and they're like. <laughs> I didn't know we had Pentecostal cousins. And I'm like, yeah, you do. (laughs) And, and, uh, so I've been really, really blessed by this church. And one of the things about this channel is to kind of, I want all voices of the restoration to be heard. And this, just so you know, Church Jesus Christ was, was, uh, just to kind of talk about in historical context, uh, is it was what's often called the Bickerton organization William Bickerton is the most prominent individual in historical context now they would say that you guys were started April 6 1830 correct and then amen and then, right okay so uh, so they consider themselves a direct lineage to Joseph Smith and then reorganized on, on in a certain context uh, uh in the 1850s 1860 period there's some disputes exactly when you guys were reorganized according to Daniel Stone but um And that's, I've done enough talking, uh, but I I love this church. I felt so blessed by attending their services. And I was like, we got to get these people on there. Your story needs to be told. So Josh, let's just talk a little bit about your church. Kind of just give me like, maybe give the audience a little, a little, like how you would do an elevator pitch to maybe somebody who's not familiar with what your organization is all about.
1: Well, Stephen, first, thanks for having me on today. And I appreciate the channel. I'm still doing catch up, man. You go so, you have so many great interviews. And then I peg them I'm like, okay, I need to go back and listen to this one. Okay, I got to go back and listen to this one. So I'm, um, I be honest, I'm, I'm still playing catch up, but the ones that I've listened to have been fantastic. And I just respect uh, what you're doing and the, the method and the mode behind it. And uh, I'm blessed to be on today with you. So for my church, the Church of Jesus Christ, we believe ourselves to be, and I say it in boldness, but with humility, the kingdom of God on earth restored in Latter-day glory. And we hold the truths of the Bible and Book of Mormon together. And that's the foundation of our faith and the building blocks of our church organization. So we, we strictly adhere to that. We don't have any other books of canon. It's just the Bible and the Book of Mormon for the Church of Jesus Christ. And we do see ourselves as the true succession to the gospel restored to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery when hands were laid upon them uh, and the priesthood was restored. So we look upon that as as the foundation of the gospel restored in in our latter day and time. And we consider ourselves to be the true succession of that church era. Your compliment about us being maybe the Pentecostal cousins, I take that in the right spirit, brother, because for me, you know, we have the gifts of the spirit. We believe that the spirit flows through our church and that we have a great gospel of love to be shared to the world. And I hope that warmth and feeling is felt by anybody that visits and comes in, but also that there's something tangible and effectual that you can carry with you throughout your life uh, by uh, coming into the church and, and receiving the goodness that's offered through the Church of Jesus Christ.
0: You know, one of the things when I attended the service, uh, it's, a, it's a congregation in the just north of Tampa. And I had the privilege to uh, meet. I, it, was, it was a beautiful service. Uh, a lot of the, the, the members of the church were informed that I was gonna be attending through our mutual friend, Patrick McKay, uh, who's with the Independent Restoration Branch Movement in uh, Independence, Missouri. And he gave them the heads up. And so many of the people watched my videos and they just were so pleased with what I was doing and, I, and I, I don't think, no, I hadn't even taped in my interview with Daniel Stone yet. Um, but Daniel Stone said, well, make sure you look up Scott Griffith. So I got in touch with him. And um, and I just remember after the service, I went to the, um, the the elders, the apostles that were there. And I said, you know what? You guys don't play church. It's real. I said, I go into too many services on my side where we got the disco balls and the smoke machines and the middle-aged pastor dressed up like a millennial and uh, I see that and I said that they're just playing church uh, you guys uh, you guys do church you take it seriously and it's not a game and you had mentioned to me when I mentioned this to you that we are a church I believe it was you of tent makers and carpenters talk a little oh, bit yeah. about that talk about that
1: that's a great comment because truly I mean in in this era of time we're a church that's built on a foundation of farmers and coal miners, and that goes back to the New Testament church of Christ having a carpenter background, Paul when he was in the missionary field not really being paid. In fact, when you look at Corinthians and some other texts in the New Testament, he's actually gathering funds to provide back support back to Jerusalem because they were broke and destitute and struggling in Jerusalem while different members were maybe doing a little bit better on the uh, on the outskirts. But we're a church where there's not a paid ministry. It's a lay ministry. And we believe that the calling comes from God and is spoken by him and through him. And so with that, there's not a actually today, there's not a single paid uh, person in the Church of Jesus Christ. Nobody is paid for any activity. It's all volunteer and a a gift back to the Lord for the good things he's done for us so not a single paid person in the church we used to have a secretary that that did you know um, but when she retired they split up her responsibilities and there's there's nobody paid in the church
0: so you guys just had your uh, October general conference is that what you call it yep okay so they have a general conference everybody and uh, is it just once a year or, or what's the setup with the your conferences
1: It used to be back in the 1800s, four times a year, once a quarter. It's now twice a year. The fall is our business conference where the ministry oversees some of the uh, general church administration and business. And then there's spiritual days for Saturday and Sunday. And then in April, we'll hold a conference and it's just a spiritual conference. There's no business.
0: Okay. Wow. And so you just had your October conference and you uh, recently installed two uh, new apostles in your church. I've I've actually fellowship with one, Scott Griffith at his church there in north of Tampa and another gentleman. And just kind of give a brief uh, synopsis of what just recently transpired in your general conference.
1: So in our conference in October here, this last two weekends ago, uh, there were two apostles ordained. One was Brother Pichinetti, and the other was Brother Scott Griffith. I've had the privilege of knowing them both for a long time. That one one aspect of the church is we're a small church, but a big family. So you can go to California and be a member of the church in New Jersey. Well, you're staying in somebody's home. You're you know there it's a big family community feel of what's offered by the church. So you know, I know Brother Pete well, I know Brother Scott well, and that's true uh, across the body. And interesting thing happened actually over the summer. So over the summer, I had a dream. And in the dream, two things were prominent. One was personal to Brother Pete. But the other piece that was prominent was he was ordained an apostle. And I thought to myself, well, that's strange. And I kind of put the dream out of my mind thinking, well, that that's that's not going to happen, and I just kind of pushed it away. Well, two weeks later, the apostles put out the notice that Brother Pete was going to be ordained, and I thought, wow, okay, so we had a wonderful weekend this last weekend. We filled our quorum of 12 apostles uh, with Brother Pete and Brother Scott, so we are back to 12 um, in the New Testament order, and that's the, the principle of our church. We build ourselves after the New Testament church, so our structure and our ordinances all fall in line from the church from the New Testament. That's our fourth article of our faith and doctrine. And then we also you know, passed two revelations of the church and also conducted other business. So um, you may ask about that, Steve. I, I think that's on your docket. Okay. But that was something else that happened at the conference was two revelations were passed as a revelation of the Lord to the body of the church.
0: Before we talk about those revelations, I just, just want to say I'm so glad you finally got an, an Italian uh, uh, as an <laughs> apostle. Maybe talk a little bit about the heri- Italian heritage of your church as well.
1: Yeah, we had a, a real growth curve at the turn of the century, at the turn of the 20th century into like the 1920s and 30s, where so for a few decades there, the church being after Joseph Smith's martyrdom, Sidney Rigdon makes his way back to Pennsylvania, the church was uh, Is established through the ordination of William Bickerton. As that organization kind of dissolves, William Bickerton becomes prominent. He's really the only member left, according to his own testimony. And he begins to preach in the streets of Pittsburgh. So for us, we're kind of that's our foundation and our backdrop with that. Pittsburgh had a large number of Italian immigrants. And so we have a large number of, uh, I'm not Italian by, uh, by, background, but man, I'm Italian in my stomach, because I'm a member of the church, because I've had so many great Italian meals across the country. We have a, a large number of Italians in the church, and it, it seems like the last several uh, uh, presidents we've had, it's been the English and the Italians passing the baton back and
0: forth. I think that's great, and of course, you guys had an Italian uh, version of the Book of Mormon before the uh, uh, Utah branch did. Um, exactly.
1: That's is- a testament to exactly what you mentioned there. It was Prominent for us, especially at the turn of the turn into the 20th.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the two revelations that were uh, passed. And and let's talk a little bit about how does a how does the process work of you guys um, accepting, if you will, a a revelation in your church?
1: So we feel that revelation can be given to anybody. Um, God can choose to speak to whom he chooses and however he chooses. So, I mean, just an example of that is, didn't didn't Pharaoh of Egypt have a revelation that needed interpreted by Joseph? And even though he wasn't even maybe a member of anything, in fact, he was probably worshiping Ra, right? So, yet he had a dream that clearly came from the Lord. So, we believe that revelation can come from anyone that God chooses. Now, as a church, we would review experiences that have come through the church, through its members, and, but it could come from any baptized member of the church. That would be reviewed by the ministry priesthood or the overseers of um, a local congregation. And if they felt that an experience, whether it was a dream or a, a gift of the spirit, a word of the Lord, or something along those lines, that was pertinent for uh, the body of the church or for the world that that would come and be reviewed. uh, That would be sent from the local body to the apostles. The apostles and the local ministry are really trying to be a filter. Okay, what we're trying to do is two pieces. The most important piece is identify the spirit in the experience. Is it from the Lord? The second piece is to be the filter of does this contradict anything in the word of God? And if it does, that would be an elimination process. If it's either in the wrong spirit or it's not in line with, the, with what we find in the Bible and Book of Mormon, it would not make through as revelation. It would be filtered out. And then it goes to the general from the apostles. They would present it to the general priesthood at a conference. And the general priesthood, including the ministry, you know, any ordained uh, minister and, and teacher of our church would be reviewing that and ha- be able to have comments, and often in those meetings, I'll tell you, Stephen, just from my own personal experience, can be some of the most incredible meetings that I've ever been a part of when something is on the floor. There was one, for example, of a dream that was passed, a dream a sister had in the Carolinas, and it was a dream about a woman that represented Israel, and she was coming to a river, and she looked at the dreamer and said, come, come, my people are thirsty, come and give them the waters of life. And it was a, a commandment for us to, to really reaffirm our efforts for the house of Israel in some of our missionary endeavors. And when that hit the floor, there were two people that had the same vision. There was multiple uh, gift of tongues and multiple people that were interpreting the tongues, and it was matching and identical. And there was singing in the spirit. It was, it it was something where it ended and then you got to go on to the next piece of business I think nobody wanted to move right you know nobody up front nobody in the car nobody wanted to move because it was so good you know and I I think that but that's the process now for the two that we just passed I would just say I I really you know I was in the meeting okay so I've read them I've studied them I, I felt the spirit in it and and they have been approved the contents of them for me to quote it they'll be out in the minutes which will come out soon i don't want to misrepresent them or or anything just because i may not have them dialed down and and ready for that yet but uh but they would be public in our minutes there would be be nothing there that would be uh would be held back at that point once the minutes are out so
0: so i just want the audience to understand something um let's say hypothetically, you have Sister Jones at the Quin- primarily African-American congregation in Quincy, Florida, has a word from the Lord. And then it works its way through a process that you just described. That, that That's how it works. In other words, folks, the, the regular folk uh, have a say in, in the Lord. Can, in other words, they're open. And, and let me give you an example of why I think this is so significant. I- and
1: pray, praise the Lord, yes. What you're saying, praise the Lord, yes. That's how we that's how that goes. Yeah. Okay.
0: So I, I was in your, the service and uh, there was, it was people were giving their testimonies. And one of the things that really struck me was I carefully watched everything that was going on in the service. And I look up to the front where basically all the elders of the church are sitting in the front and they're listening to. Now, you got to understand, this, was a, this is a really wonderful congregation. There were probably maybe 75, 80 people there. And it was testimony time. Well, I'm used to sometimes church services where two or three people might give a testimony, might be the same two or three people giving it, and then they just move on. But I'd say at least 25 to 30 people stood up and gave their testimony. And what really struck me was when I'm watching those men up there, they were very, very carefully listening to what the people were saying. They were anticipating, we're gonna hear a word from the Lord. And there was no ego there. There was no, nobody sitting up there flipping through their Bible. Look, well, look, I got better things to do. Like I see in a lot of our churches, they were like eagerly anticipating hearing something. And I thought, I like this. This is real. And um, so that's kind of like, that's kind of how the process kind of germinates is that somebody's sister So Joan says something and it just works its way up. So all are afforded the opportunity to be used by the Lord that eventually something they utter could be part of your church is, uh, uh, I don't know. I want to, I don't want to use the word canon, but just part of the, the, the witness of your church that you would then publish and be part of who you are. And I think that's just a wonderful process. I, and I'm so intrigued by it.
1: Yeah. And, and we look at it as God's an impartial God and who are we to limit his voice in that way? So,
0: yeah, uh, yeah. Now it's just uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I just want, um, your father is actually the president of the Church of Jesus Christ. And, and just maybe talk a little bit about how he became president and uh, maybe just talk a little bit about him.
1: Well, maybe if I, if I could, I'd share a dream that was given to me about seven years ago, because this ties in to my dad's calling. Okay. So my dad was ordained an apostle, uh, called and ordained. And I had this dream. And in the dream, I'll just share a small part of it. One part of the dream was uh, my dad was introducing conference, and it was a time when the ministry was gathering, like on one of our Friday mornings in the scene of the dream. Well, that part of the dream, I didn't think very much about it. There was other things in the dream that really stood out to me and were important to me at the time. Years later, years later, my dad is... uh, nominated and elected president by the church. And I'll, I'll get into the process with you, Stephen. But what amazed me then was it realized to me years later, oh, that's right. The president of the church introduces conference on Friday mornings to the ministry. You know, that part of the dream didn't stand out to me very much at the time. My dad's led meetings my entire life, <laughs> you know, so that part wasn't a spark until later. Um, now, for the process, we have elections every, every two years, and so um, only a quorum of 12 apostle can be elected president, um, but we hold elections every two years, and my father has been president of the church since 2018, and Brother Paul Palmieri, who had been president, was uh, really not well. Um, so there was going to be a change. His health was, was deteriorating. I, I think he would have declined a nomination, to be honest. And so uh, my dad was, uh, was appointed and approved by the, the general priesthood to be president over the, the Church of Jesus Christ. So his term is, is every two years, uh, can be reelected for, and we just instituted this a few years ago, it's a 10-year max term. Um, now, that wasn't the case my whole life growing up, but it, it seems like a good way to uh, to keep a fresh body now, because I, I think there's different ways people view presidents of the church in different churches. OK, for us, it's an it's an overseer of the entire church. But that does does not automatically uh, make my dad, Brother Joel, uh, a prophet or anything like that uh, we believe is called to the Lord for for the position he holds and it's a incredible mantle to to uphold before the lord but um it's not the oldest member of the quorum necessarily that inherits that position at the death of somebody no it it would mean just that he's been elected at the at the conference for for that position
0: so daniel stone mentioned to me that um william bickerton at the time, uh, when he was um, the president, was actually referred to as the prophet, seer, and revelator.
1: Of Even ordained that way. Even ordained that way back in that day. Yes,
0: okay. true. Okay, now, but, but since him, you basically just have the office of the president. Can it, can it act in a prophetic role?
1: Well, okay, so in William Bickerton's era, he was actually ordained that way as a, a prophet, seer, and revelator, as were his two counselors. Back in that, that time. So we have not ordained a prophet since, although we certainly believe that ordained prophets can be part of the church. And we certainly do have the gift of prophecy and the word of the Lord in the church today, uh, alive and well, um, both with brothers and sisters across the church. So uh, is my dad's office a spiritual office? Yes. Uh, can he be used in the spirit of prophecy? Sure. okay, is he a prophet? I, I think he'd be the first to say no.
0: Maybe uh, just dawned on me talk a little bit about from my understanding, based on my reading of the history of your church, there you guys are anticipating another prophet named Joseph. Is that correct?
1: Sure. We, we're anticipating prophetically uh, many to come forth in the future that will be prophets for the world, and and the word we would use even in certain way is is seer, which the definition in the Book of Mormon is even even greater than a prophet. So we could look at that scripture in the Book of Mormon. So uh, we do believe in a choice seer to come that will come from the lineage of Joseph uh, through the lineage even of uh, in the Book of Mormon, uh, Lehi and his son Joseph. So. We look forward to a choice here to come that will be used as an instrument of God in the great gathering of the house of Israel for the convincing of them to the gospel of Christ and the really fulfillment of that great gathering to come before Christ's return. So we do look forward. It's actually in Jewish tradition, there's, and you can look at this in in even Jewish tradition today, they, they don't look for one Messiah. Okay, that's a that's a concept we have in our mind. Okay, Um, but for a Jew, for a true rabbinic conservative Jew, they actually look forward to 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 two or multiple messiahs. One being Messiah Ben Joseph, the other being Messiah Ben Judah. Messiah Ben Joseph, you know, anointed one, son of Joseph, descendant of Joseph's line. Messiah Ben, you know, Ben David, you know, descended from David's line. Okay, well, you know, <clears throat> we, we aren't minimizing the role of Christ as Messiah by me saying that. That's me referencing a, a Jewish tradition. Okay, I'm not saying that there's another Messiah necessarily, but it, for us, there's a hope of a deliverer yet to come for Israel to usher in God's kingdom on earth before Christ returns, and ultimately, the glory goes back to Christ at that day.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, uh, this is great stuff. And I think it's important, you know, and and a lot of people, you know, David Whitmer kind of had a similar viewpoint, um, just so you know, this is not entirely a foreign concept, but there are many other people within the restoration that kind of had a similar view of how this would transpire. Uh, So it's a history worth looking into if you all want to read about that, look at some of what David Whitmer had to say, and of course, what William Bookerton had to say. Um, One of the things I wanted, before we get to uh, what we wanted to talk about, I just wanted to talk. I love this other aspect of your church. And if Sister Arlene Buffington, who really is one of the most remarkable stories I've ever heard, full stop, <laughs> and when it comes within Christianity. Amen. Um, this is somebody who, I, and I've talked about it with Daniel Stone um, when we did our interview um, briefly. And I actually had some LDS women who contacted me wanting to know more about Arlene. And I believe may have even purchased some songs of Zion as a result, because they were so enthralled by the idea. But basically, Patrick McKay was telling me the story about Arlene and how she would receive these songs in her head uh, in a supernatural manner. And when he was telling me the story, I thought, well, this is interesting. And then what I've heard those type of stories before, but it wasn't until I went to the church service and saw that it was an entire hymnal called songs of zion but not only that but there's, there's like these binders and i and, and 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 i said what's this and i said well about 15 years later or whatever sister uh, arlene had some more songs uh, and so we, we just put them in these binders yeah I, I just briefly let's just talk a little bit about arlene and, and actually just so you know folks i, I have talked to arlene's daughter and uh, we've discussed about her coming on so uh, so we'll just talk about it briefly but i just think when we talk about church jesus christ man we got to talk about sister arlene
1: yeah, it's a, it's a special gift. So just to take maybe two steps back, we all would recognize, right? The gift of songs has been a gift in scripture and in the word of the Lord for a long time. You can go into the Book of Mormon, even with Nephi's prayer, Awake My Soul, and how beautiful and poetic it is. And, you know, so at the at the earliest stages of the Book of Mormon, you get a a cry out unto the Lord that is a staple for any Book of Mormon believer. You know, no longer droop in sin. And all those beautiful passages that, that feel just like a psalm. Well, that, that's not true. That's not new in the scripture either, right? We go back into the psalms. Back to David. And even some of them probably predate David and post-date David. Of different psalms that were written and inspired to the glory of God. Well, there's we have the gift of songs in our church. Okay, so even in my particular branch in Erie, Pennsylvania, we had a sister named Esther Dyer, and she had a similar gift where she, now she was musical, so this is different than where I'll go with Sister Eileen. but she would sit at her piano sometimes, and the Lord would give her a complete song, start to finish all the words, wasn't prepared beforehand, and now she had the skill set where she could then Compose that that had been given through that gift. Sister Arlene, and that that songbooks in our in our congregation, a gift for sharing. And you would see that maybe scattered throughout the church today in different branches, not in all of them, but definitely in, in a lot of like the favorite booklets. There will be a couple of her songs in the favorite booklets. You know, one's all about the love of God. Love, oh, what love. And it just goes on about the love of God. Uh, Sister Arlene was someone. I hate using the past tense because Sister Arlene was alive my whole life. I cherish my memories of her. She passed away to her eternal reward with the Lord just, uh, um, just shortly. I mean, we're, not, we're still not quite out of mourning with it yet. But uh, she had an incredible gift where she would be given a complete song. She could have been making the bed or she could have been in a testimony service and the Lord would give her a a complete song. And she had no musical talent. She wasn't a singer. She wasn't a a musician of any way. And actually when these gifts started to come, she needed help because she had no way to write out her gift, except to maybe sing into a little recorder. And so she worked with a a number of different uh, brothers and sisters in the church. Um, Particularly at first, Brother Eugene uh, was really instrumental, and in his name's on a lot of the songs because he helped with some of that composition. But the gift, the song, and all the words would come to Sister Arlene, and they, they were thematic as well, all about and circling around the Latter-day Promises and God's plan for Israel. And so there's a, a Latter-day theme that comes through with our Songs of Zion, and yeah, you'll see a published songbook because she had it for a few years and then they stopped. And then maybe 12 years ago or right, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, maybe it was 15 years ago, she started to have songs again. There's, I believe, 240 total songs of Zion. I mean, incredible songs that you'll hear sung around the domestic church and in many places around the world um, in our congregations through that incredible beautiful gift from the lord
0: yeah i when patrick first told me about her i was just floored by it and then i don't think there's ever been a a full hymnal of that magnitude produced by one person that is used by a church in the way that you guys use it i think it's a gift to the world and i know when i attended patrick mckay's service um uh, they sang some of the songs of, of hers. They love it. They love her songs. And so it is actually people outside of your church are starting to appreciate the va- and, and, and really appreciate the, the, the message of the songs. And then just also appreciating sister Arlene and all that she did and that she left the gift, not just for your church, but in one sense for the world.
1: Amen. And if yeah, I'm not trying to shamelessly plug anything, but if somebody wants to listen to the tunes of a few of the songs you know on our general church website, the church of Jesus You know, the article there is important. If you don't have the article, you'll go somewhere else. But the church of Jesus there's um, a music section in the top tabs, and you can freely listen to multiple volumes of some of the songs. So,
0: I'm, I'm going to provide a link for that in the description as well. So, so, uh, yeah, that's so, uh, in the future, folks, we're going to talk to Arlene's uh, daughter. I'm looking forward to it. I met her. She's a dynamo. She's awesome. Uh, she spoke at the Book of Mormon rally that I spoke at as well, and uh, I look forward to having her on. So let's now talk about what one of the reasons you wanted to come on the program is uh, you, uh, through your research and study, uh, came across a lot of what uh, modern evangelical Protestant Christian apologists have been using over the last few decades about new means of uh defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, William Lane Craig and a couple, of, uh, a couple other people you had mentioned. And basically what you're, tra- what you're doing is you're going to take their arguments in favor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to take it one step further to use those very same arguments that also then actually in, in, your, in what you believe proves the coming forth of the Book of Mormon in the same uh, context. Um, I'm fascinated by that because you're kind of using my people's, if you will, <laughs> uh, uh, stuff, and integrating right. it into the restoration, which is I love. I, I want to see the cross-pollinization to continue. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, good good should cleave to good, right? So um, yeah, so maybe five years ago or so, Patrick and Jim McKay were holding a Book of Mormon symposium. They invited me out and to be a, a speaker, and so they invited me out, and I was trying to figure out, to be honest, what I was going to present on that would be original, because here I am going to be standing up with professors of universities and all these different things. Well, what's going to be something that, that I could bring? And Well, one night I was watching um, Gary Habermas from Liberty University deliver some of his apologetic material in support of the res- historical true resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as he was hitting the points of the reasons why the resurrection was historical, a light bulb went off in my mind because I saw clearly the, the parallels of how this, the, if, if apologists for Christianity, including Restoration Christianity, have created a, a great criteria for a historical miracle, Well, how does that apply to the gold plates, the golden plates in the Book of Mormon? So I started to dive in. So I use the work of, yeah, Gary Habermas, N.T. Wright, William Lane Craig, Michael Lacona, world leaders on the historicity of the resurrection. I'm not trying to establish what's the criteria for a miracle. They are doing that, and they are applying that then to the resurrection. What I'm doing is just cross-pollinating and saying, okay, well, how does that fit with the, the restoration? So in a couple of different, and I have a podcast now, I interview scholars for the Book of Mormon at bookofmormonhistory.com. There's a podcast on this. There's a manuscript that I'm working on that hopefully I can get done and out there next year. But the, the main crux of it that is just taking one more step of, okay, the historical fact, Christ was crucified and all the, the historical backdrop of that as a historical bedrock. You have multiple reasons to think that that's really true. First, the gospel sources are early. Um, There's even um, references to it in 1 Corinthians 15, which is even written before Paul. You're only a few years after the resurrection. All these good reasons, and you have outside Roman sources and Grecian sources that are even referencing the crucifixion of Christ. So there's when it comes to ancient history, there's great evidence to say, okay, Jesus really, that's a historical fact. Jesus really was crucified. In fact, the only source that would counter that is the Quran, uh, you know, the Quran, which actually maybe shows that the Quran might not be built on maybe the historical bedrock with the same quality as the New Testament. So, but all the other historical sources say, oh yeah, Christ was crucified. So, The word you'll hear from Michael Lacona or the word you'll hear from William Lane Craig, multiple independent attestation. Okay, there's multiple sources independent of one another, all confirming the fact Jesus died by crucifixion. Well, very simply with the Book of Mormon, we have both one of the original sources and we have multiple attestation from witnesses themselves on what was going on. So you have the original manuscript, 28% of that still exists, and you have the entire printer's manuscript. We are at ground zero of the upper room of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon, okay, with Oliver Cowdery and, and at different times, Emma, John Whitmer, other scribes that were in different ways. Martin Harris at the beginning, different ones that were part of that process. They are all independently attesting in different places and times to what was going on in that room okay and you have joseph himself bearing witness and we have the manuscript they were working on so we're at ground zero the book of Mormon is a historical artifact okay so we can then compare that and study that um you go out to even just uh i'm not going to hit them all because that's that's maybe not the point but even just there's evidences for the empty tomb and maybe we'll cross compare that and that'll be Maybe what's valuable here, but when you look at the evidences for the empty tomb, you'll hear three main points. Of um, after you start hearing the historical evidence for the burial, uh, which I think is strong, Joseph of Arimathea, there's there's strong evidences for that. But just the evidences for the empty tomb, they break it down: uh, Jerusalem, jet, Jerusalem, uh, enemies, and unlikely testimonies. Specifically, the testimonies of the women. So when you go to to Jet, where does Christianity start? It's getting preached within 40 days on the streets of Jerusalem. The disciples didn't pack up, go to Egypt, and start preaching the resurrection of Jesus. No, they started it right where everything happened. They didn't run away from where they were. They started it just within. So if you want to know if the tomb was really empty, when they started preaching that the tomb was really empty, well, go and see for yourself. You know, there's enough, or produce a dead body if he's not, if the tomb's not really empty. They're they're starting the movement at ground zero within a reasonable length of time from the crucifixion itself. Then you have enemies. You go into Matthew, the first reactions from the uh, enemies of the church were the Jewish Sanhedrin, who were saying, "Well, the disciples stole away the body." Well, that's an admission of an empty tomb so even the enemies of the christian movement at its inception were admitting that the tomb was empty so jerusalem the location time frame enemies are even admitting the tombs empty they're trying to create a counter explanation and you have unlikely testimonies Uh, stephen who were the first ones at the tomb It was the women it's the women in the middle east
0: in the first century
1: (laughs) And definitively, we know Mary Magdalene because she's there's some questions of maybe how many, but definitely Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, right? So, different gospels all saying it. Well, you go into Josephus, Josephus, a Jewish historian working for the Romans, writing Roman history and Jewish history, right? You go into some of his writings, well, he says, the you might as well be, uh, well, the Talmud and Josephus basically come up with evaluations where a woman's testimony was less believable than a thief if brought before a court they would believe a professional thief over a woman because of their and you know the quotes are like things that don't throw tomatoes at me through the screen but because of the baselessness of their character and all these things but that's the cultural backdrop of the resurrection right is that the the Jewish community would not believe in a woman's testimony as strongly as a male, and that's maybe a tremendous understatement. So the admission in the Gospels that the women were the first ones to witness Christ resurrected in the empty tomb would have been maybe a blemish on the resume, so to speak. If they were making it up, they would not have said that it was women that went there first. In fact, when you go to the First Corinthians 15 account, the women are absent and Peter's the first, okay? So the first published church account uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 avoids the women. Culturally speaking, we understand why. So the unlikely testimonies of the women actually support the fact that that's really what happened, that it really was women that were there on Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Day, and saw the resurrected body of Jesus in the empty tomb. Now, that's, that's jet, right? Jerusalem, enemies, unlikely testimonies. Let's go to the restoration and the empty stone box in New York and golden plates miraculously instructed by an angel of God, all these things, okay? Well, where does Joseph Smith print the Book of Mormon? In Palmyra, about a mile walk from the hill. If you want to know if there was an empty stone box on a hill in Palmyra, where are they preaching first before they go to Kirtland? They start preaching. Now, they move pretty quick, okay, because they have success elsewhere. But they first start preaching and Book of Mormons are being sold at Grandland's print house right on the doorstep of Palmyra, a mile, less than a mile and a half walk from the hill itself. And that leads directly into point two. So the movement starts in Palmyra, right where the Book of Mormon was procured from the empty stone box and in the hill in New York. And then initially, the struggle that's happening in Palmyra is not the fact that nobody thought Joseph received anything. It's the fact that the enemies are all trying to, with divining rods and different things, figure out where the plates are so that they can steal them. They are admitting that the plates exist because the first enemies are digging through the barn and digging through the house and they're Joseph's fighting people off and all these different things. Well, it's because the enemies were recognizing that Joseph had something. In fact, when one of the witnesses to the plates first heard about the movement, he heard it through hearsay and he's on a train and this is all scuttling about. And he goes up to a group that are being talking about the subject and they say, well, how do you How do you know that that Joseph has anything? and the the enemies there on the train respond, "Well, we know he has because we've been to the hill and we saw the stone box. So even the enemies at that time are admitting that there was something going on, and most of them who wanted a, a cut of the proceeds, some of them had even been money diggers with Joseph from his past. A lot of people look at the money digging as like this huge, Maybe negative stamp on Joseph. I look at it as a testimony to the truth of what would come because when he actually does get the plates, those that had been money digging with him become an enemy to witness what was actually going on and the fact that Joseph had truly found something at the hill. They go up for themselves, they're digging all around, they see the stone box. So then, unlikely testimonies. Well, we have testimonies of women, of course, that are part of Joseph's family. But I'll give one maybe even unlikelier testimony than even that. Although a nice article by Dan Peterson, uh, after I did the presentation, he dove into maybe how women would have been viewed in court of law in the early 1800s. I think it's, there is some comparison there that's worth noting. But I think even more striking is Josiah Stoll had funded Joseph to money dig. Had been his boss during some of that part of his early life, and had never received any profit from it. So if anybody should have maybe been in opposition and never claimed that Joseph had anything, it would have been Josiah Stole. And he was there on the night Joseph brought the plates from the dugout log and brought them into the house. Now that's not the day he brought them home, brought them down from the hill, but at a later time he brings them home to the house. Josiah Stole was there that night. And within the last 10 years, they found his published testimony in court of law defending the fact that Joseph had actual plates. Now here's somebody that had no financial gain, only financial losses from some of Joseph's excursions. But he testified in court of law that when Joseph passed the plates into the house, that the frock lifted up slightly on the plates, and he caught a glimpse of the plates himself, became a witness of the plates himself, an unlikely testimony of the plates. He later converts, is baptized, and becomes all in, Okay, But the the backdrop is somebody that had not financially benefited, had every reason to be against, turned into being a pro-witness because he saw it for himself when the frock lifted up. He caught a glimpse of the plates testified at court that they were real and true an unlikely testimony to the movement you have jet on one side pet on the other and i think when we look at source documents and strength of evidence i think the case for the historical resurrection is strong Mm. and i would say if it's strong it's way stronger for the restoration and the book of mormon
0: so you know i was just thinking about it because you know dan vogel uh has uh, advocated that there were plates but they were made by joseph um and you know, that's often the, the the narrative that people, well, if there were physical plates, they were made um, through some of the just the common tin or whatever that would have existed in the area at the time. But as you were telling me the story, I start thinking, well, if this guy didn't get any benefit and he lost money, and he catches a glimpse of the plates. Don't you think he would have maybe, and this is just me thinking ad hoc here, don't you think he would have maybe recognized uh, that it for what it was if it wasn't real?
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I I would think that's a great, great point to add in here. You know, I think you have the artifact of the content itself that you have to account for with the Book of Mormon that we lovingly have today, right? You have to account for this somehow in either explanation or counter-explanation. And I think the most believable explanation is that it, unless you are adverse to miracles, okay, if you are adverse to miracles, then there's nothing I can say that will convince you, just like there's no nothing I could say on the resurrection that would convince somebody. But if you believe a miracle can happen, I think the probability, the historical prob- probability pendulum overwhelmingly sways to it happening as the witnesses and people describe. There's even... I mean, this isn't my work, but there's even Bayesian statistics on, like, probability of, like, conspiracies and how long they can last and before the hoax is revealed. And overwhelmingly, the, the, the even that math supports the fact that it happened just the way the believers said it did. Because eventually, right, a lot of the witnesses are excommunicated in 1838. I mean, at that point, wouldn't you expose? I mean... They're Joseph Smith's <clears throat> writing vitriol about some of them, and yet they hold true to the Book of Mormon. They won't deny it. And I think there's, in the face of gunpoint for David Whitmer, in the face of being tarred and feathered for Joseph Smith, poisoned in his mouth, you know, they suffered, and even in Hiram, the night before Hiram and Joseph die, the night before they're reading Book of Mormon passages. Hmm. So You know, they took comfort the night before they died. Now, did they know the next day they were going to die? I don't know that. But the night before they're killed and Carthage is, you know, raided by the mob and shots are exchanged between both parties and Joseph and Hiram are killed. They're they're reading the Book of Mormon. Well, if it was something that you had created yourself with plates you had made out of tin yourself the historical record just doesn't seem to match the actions of the individuals. If that's your explanation, Dan Vogel, sorry.
0: So It's interesting. Uh, I think this is really fascinating what you're doing with the apologetic aspect. And, uh, you know, folks, I'm, I, I don't have a dog in this fight. You know, I genuinely, I'm just wanting to engage the restoration and have conversations. And and as an outsider um, I've sometimes been able to make insights that, into the thing because I'm not in any bubble. Um and and so it's just been fascinating how like I'm hearing your story and then I'm thinking, wait a second, Josiah, if he if he lost money and he saw that they were common 10, I <laughs> I'd be great. At it
1: I think he'd speak up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, wow, that, yeah, I never thought of that before. Um so I, I want to maybe just kind of you had mentioned to me that you know I had actually sat in, in a presentation in the Book of Mormon Expressions Forum. Um, which I'm going to have some. Uh, the person who's founded that, by the way, come on my program and talk about that group. They meet every Monday night. It's a really dynamic group, and you and I have both given presentations to that group. Yeah, one of the pre- great.
1: Paul's great. Yeah, yeah, Paul
0: Paul DeBarth is a great guy, and uh, let's keep his uh, keep him in your prayers. I know his wife has been having some health issues, um, so just pray for uh, the the Barth family uh, and keep her in your prayers. Um, But you had gave a presentation, maybe just give like a little synopsis of the idea of the parallels of the New Testament gospel message, and then the gospel message in the Book of Mormon that kind of seem to then uh, complement each other in a unique way.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. So part of the manuscript I'm working on, which includes some of the historical aspects we've talked about, another chunk that I dove into pretty early was you know, in 3rd Nephi, now, my church uses the same verses, same versification system as LDS. So, um, so with that, when I start saying chapter verse, that'll be recognizable to some. And if you're Community of Christ or RLDS or, you know, some other, you know, group, uh, you know, Denver snuffers even have their own uh, Book of Mormon with their own versification. But for us, when Christ says, this is my gospel in 3rd Nephi. In chapter twenty-seven, for us, um, verses thirteen through sixteen, this is my gospel, and he lays out the points. I looked at that and I thought, okay, well, what's the what are the themes in here that he's saying? Because if the Lord Himself, in red letters, is saying this is my gospel, well, there's nothing more important for us to learn or understand. And the basic tenets were: Jesus came, the condescension of Christ. He is anointed Messiah. He's called of God, anointed Messiah. He's obedient, sinlessly obedient to the Father perfectly. And his obedience is true all the way to his death, the death on a cross to atone for our sins. So the atonement, the crucifixion of Christ comes after his obedience. And then he's crucified, he's resurrected. And so will we all one day, whether you believe in his resurrection or not, to stand before him in judgment. Those are the concepts that are there in 3 Nephi 27 in just those three verses, hits those points. Then, if you want to obey the gospel, there's two commandments that are given in that same chapter. But uh, if you believe the message, you know, and that's what the word gospel means in the Greek, it, it means message. So Christ stands up, this is my gospel, this is my message. Well, what is that message? Well, he came, he's called, he's obedient. Okay, his obedience is true even to be crucified, to atone for our sins. Okay, he doesn't remain in the tomb. He resurrects in glory, and one day we all will stand before him, Christ the just judge, to be judged according to, you know, our works, as the scripture says. So those six points are fluent throughout 3rd Nephi 27, and actually throughout the Book of Mormon, with two commands, repent, be baptized, if you believe that, that saving message of, of Jesus Christ. So the next thing I wanted to do was say, okay, that's the maybe Book of Mormon's New Testament message. Well, how does that compare to the Bible? So because even in a lot of Christian circles, I will hear, and even sometimes in our own church and other churches, you'll hear, the gospel, the gospel, the message, message. sometimes they, we use it in a lot of different ways today, meaning a lot of different things. Sometimes you'll be in a congregation, they'll just mean it to be the church. Okay, well, it's not. It's a saving message from Christ given to us. And in Philippians chapter 2, there's an incredible, what I was looking at first was the earliest sources in the New Testament. Because in Acts chapter 2, it talks about the apostles' doctrine. Okay, there was a doctrine that was being taught and preached by the apostles that they were united on. Even Paul was united on it, because in Galatians, you go in, he goes back, I think it's 14 years after his conversion, uh, give or take, don't quote me on that, but he goes back after his conversion. And this is when he's saying in Galatians, I didn't want to see anybody. I don't know if I saw anybody except for Peter and James, the Lord's brother, two ordained apostles in the New Testament church. And what are they, what's he doing? Well, he's comparing notes. He'd been converted independently by his own vision of the Lord. And he goes back and he meets with Peter and James and he says something so profound in a verse we would never quote. He says, they added nothing to me. So Paul's gospel message matched Peter and James's perfectly. The doctrines he was preaching, the apostles doctrines were matching doctrines. Okay, and that was important to Paul. That's why he went back. So I wanted to see if the Book of Mormon matched the New Testament. Was the Apostles' doctrine matching? Was Christ's gospel matching the Apostles' doctrine? So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, uh, there's a pre-Pauline gospel statement. Uh, some would call it a, a creedal statement. I That word you know, maybe ties in for some later aspects of, of Christianity there from those, you know, 300, 400 AD and beyond. But it, it's an early pre Paul. Paul did not write it, Paul was quoting it when he wrote it. Okay. He was quoting something that even predated himself. So the New Testament church filled with a lot of uneducated people, maybe, maybe many could not even read and write. How are you going to learn the gospel message? Well, you're going to memorize it and you're going to share it. So it need to be short and simple. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, all six points, all six points that you find in 3 Nephi 27 are there. The condescension of Christ, his messianic calling, his obedience to the Father, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection, and ultimately the judgment. It's all there. Then I went to Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. You've called us the Pentecostal uh, cousins. Well, I would say we're built on the same gospel as preached by Peter on that day. Because all six points are there, including two judgment clauses. He quotes Joel and he quotes Psalms for the judgment about God being almighty and underneath him. And Christ is the judge in that chapter. So Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost is the gospel message. That was the apostle's doctrine, and I found it throughout the Book of Mormon as early as, and and when, once you start identifying those points and tracing through the Book of Mormon, it abounds. There's no other text I've found with more clarity on the gospel than the Book of Mormon. Jacob contends with Sherem, and it says that, it specifically says they're contending over the gospel. What are they contending on first? The condescension of Christ. Would he come? could God do that? Would he come in flesh? Sherem said, no. Jacob said, oh yeah, baby, it's coming. You know, Abinadi, two chapters, Mosiah 15, 16, two chapters, maybe one of the longest sermons in the Book of Mormon, lays out the gospel front and back. And at the end, the converts somehow know exactly what to do. They baptize and start a church. So, the Book of Mormon is prolific in its gospel declaration, and I find it matching and overlaying with the gospel we, and intertwining with the gospel message from the New Testament church. I find it to be the same gospel message built on the same principles in two different eras. And by the way, if the Book of Mormon is a history, it's the strongest evidence for the historical resurrection than ever given because 2,500 people reached their hands into his side and touched his garment. So the Book of Mormon offers maybe the strongest evidence for the resurrection ever offered to the world, built on the same gospel message given by Christ in the first place.
0: You know, so this is my edition. This is uh, one of my editions of the Book of Mormon from you guys and... uh... Uh, it's it's contending for favorite edition with uh, <laughs> with uh, the re- Zarahemla's. Uh,
1: I I love the restored page. covenant edition too, so I I don't blame you for having both of them up there. And uh, <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the prop.
0: <laughs> so, but you know, and I think it's significant, uh, and I want my audience to hear Josh's message. Now, I I have a mixture of very conservative orthodox um, LDS, a very progressive people um, in both the LDS church as well as Community of Christ. Um, And I have, you know, I have, I have met, I met three believers in the spirit filled Christians who are believers in the book of Mormon who have nothing to do with Mormonism at the, at the rally.
1: Lynn Um, Ridenhauer and others. Yeah. Wonderful men,
0: Wonderful, wonderful people. And um, I just want to just, I just want to leave this. And and also I do have a a growing evangelical audience. Uh, I hear I'm getting feedback from evangelicals now because basically this channel is primarily for the restoration. But one of the things I want to impart to all of you is, you know, so often I hear this slur um, against the Book of Mormon that it's of the devil, that the devil was assisted in the creation of this book. And in my mind, the devil isn't going to create a document that uh, affirms the New Testament, affirms Jesus, uh, talks about, you know, salvation through him, uh, his work that he did at the cross and everything that what it stands for. I just don't see the devil. Uh, that, that doesn't seem like the book the devil would help uh, produce. Amen. And I, Amen. so I think it's so important as evangelicals to sometimes we need to just take the blinders off. One of the most beautiful things in attending the Church of Jesus Christ service is um, it was so powerful to me. I felt the spirit there. And I just want to say it was like I, uh, I found a lost family, brothers and sisters mm. I didn't know that I had. And um, it really, hit, it just, it really struck me, you know, um, to, to, to realize that I had family that I didn't know. And um, your church, Josh, has really blessed me. I'll never join it because I don't believe in church membership, but I, I love it, man. And I, I want to honor your church and what it stands for. I think on paper, you guys shouldn't exist. I was telling Scott Griffith, I said, <laughs> you guys should have been subsumed by Joseph Smith III and Emma's church a long time ago. But somehow, some way, this little church that shouldn't exist, exists. And to me, that always tells me that the hand of the Lord has to be involved in it somehow.
1: And we literally view it the same way, that we were preserved by God to hold the, the truths of the restoration forward for our day and time. But we believe we were, we were truly miraculously preserved as a church. And I'm thankful for your spiritual witness, Stephen. I want you to know, I'm never going to hold you to that statement. I'll let the Lord work on you in his own way. And may God be the, the victor at the end. And I'm just thankful for our friendship. And And your your witness, though, is, is a blessing to me. And I'm filled by what you shared. So I
0: uh, appreciate it. I just remember when I shared my experience with Christopher Thomas, who, of course, my audience knows very well, uh, author of the Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon. By the way, do you have that book or have you read it?
1: I have not. I saw the interview, but I have not read it for myself.
0: Okay. Well, um, get, get, get get your hands on a copy because um, it's a fantastic book, get a lot of good feedback. But I just remember about two or three days after I attended the service, I started telling Christopher about it. And then I started um, emoting, if you will, which I don't normally do this old Dutch Calvinist uh, background. You don't do that. <laughs> um, But he told me, he said, you know, you hold on to that, that experience that you felt, that was an important thing that happened to you. Because again, this, the the whole entire purpose of this channel was to be secular and scholarly and not allow the spirit to enter. Well, not, not, not allow it, but I just didn't expect it to happen. And then it did. And I just want to tell people, the Lord's been working on me. You know, um, I was an atheist for a long time and the Lord called me back. And Amen. over this process, uh, the beautiful thing about this engagement that I've been having with restoration is that, you know, I had a lot of evangelicals go to me and say, well, as long as you do this, as long as you tell them that and tell them, tell, as long as you tell them they're going to, they're of the devil and they're uh, going to burn in hell, then you can, you can, t- then you can talk to them about anything. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. And then I even said, you know, I'm not there to teach them anything. If anything, I want to learn from them. And one of the things that is really uh, my personal faith and my spiritual journey has only strengthened as I've been engaging people on a real level and not with an agenda of trying to convert people, but just let them tell their stories. And it's amazing the things people have been telling me as a result. Uh, I've been blessed. I've been blessed by members, individual members of the restoration. And um, you're one of those people that have blessed me as well, Josh.
1: Well, and you're a blessing in my life, Stephen, and I've, I've learned from your interviews, I love your, your meek and mild, caring uh, notes that you play with in, in the interviews that you give. It, it shows the intent of your heart, and I'm super blessed in that, and it, it's one of the reasons why I think anybody could come on, because they know that you'll respect them and honor the truths that they hold from what they see and, and know from their own purview and I think that's an admirable thing, uh, and it, it makes anybody that would come on extremely comfortable, and, it, and it, the product is, is worthy of, of the, the time.
0: So, no, well, thank you. I appreciate that, Josh. Um, you know, just, just a reminder to everybody, you know, we do all, Paul says, we all see through a glass darkly, and we shouldn't be so black and white about things if, we can, if we're not seeing the full picture. And I think that sometimes we just got to let the spirit come in and operate and, and just be prepared for, to be used by him and be taken in directions you would have never expected. And this is what this journey has been all about for me. Uh, Josh, you know, I, um, I just want to know, do you have any final words that you would like to share with the audience?
1: Well, I would just uh, tell the audience that my family has a, a long history in the restoration. I was born and raised in the church, but there was a time when I was in college that I went to every church I possibly could find and searched and desired to find spiritual truths, um, question things, poked around the the religious room of, of worldviews out there. And I'll just share that to me, for me, I can only speak for myself. The Church of Jesus Christ is a pearl of great price I don't mean that about the book. I mean it about the parable that is in a hill. And I would sell everything I had for the Lord and for his gospel and for his church. I believe I found that. Now, I know that that's an evangelist talking like an evangelist, okay? But I'm sincere. I believe the Church of Jesus Christ is special, holy, and that God has a covenant to us to do a work in our day and time. We're a basic church, a simple church built on the truths that you find in the Bible and Book of Mormon. And uh, the spirit is with us. There are, to the glory of God, there are dead raised in our church, people with COVID that have been healed. My daughter, my daughter Phoebe was born with a genetic defect. And she's been healed, and I just praise Jesus Christ, and I thank Him for saving my soul, and allowing me to be to work for Him. Um, there's nothing more precious than that to me, and I would just say, like Christ said, when John the Baptist came to Him, and I, I use this quote a lot, but I love it, you know. And the disciples came and said, "Well, who are, art thou? Art thou the Christ? You know, art thou He?" you know and he just tells go tell john the blind see the deaf hear the dead are raised and he goes on and says and the gospels preach to the poor and i find that true in the church of jesus christ the same witness is there and we target the poor the less fortunate and the downtrodden and maybe we're not perfect but we we continue to do that and uh, the lord blesses those meager efforts that we offer back unto him so thank you for anybody that made it to this point at the end of this interview. Thank you. And, and may God bless you. And our church is the church of uh, is my, my shameless, you know, if you want to check it out. So.
0: You know what? I'm going to leave a plug for your uh, podcast as well. Um, oh, thanks. In, in, in the description, I'll, I'll leave a link for that. <clears throat> you know, folks, I uh, just want, I hope you were as blessed by this as I was um, to be able to share these kind of experiences and have this kind of dialogue um i think is so important and christians out there i know you're some of you especially you calvinists like i used to be like i tell people i say i used to be a calvinist and then i found jesus uh you know i i, I love you all of you i just want you to know i love all of you i love the calvinists i love everybody who calls him amen you know that calls him the the christ right so that to me is what it's all about so i just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe hit the uh, notification button for when a new ev- episode is coming on got some more grace great guests coming as a matter of fact i'm interviewing somebody else tonight that's going to be an interesting one to y'all um y'all uh, we're going to get through this uh pandemic together uh just use Amen. common use common sense and uh, you know and just listen to the spirit and all will be well and god bless